Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome, everyone, to episode 33 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. And for this week's episode and next, our focus will be worship. And so this is part one in a two-part series. And I've even given these episodes a title, Lift Up Your Hearts, Worship, Joy, and Mission. And so our focus will be worship, and we'll be looking more specifically at the Eucharist. Now, I know that might seem odd, as most members of our church have not received Eucharist since March, and so I'm not doing this to be cruel, but rather to help us understand what Eucharist is really, because we're either returning to church, and so it's good to be reminded of what we are returning to or we continue to participate at home and we are joining a Eucharistic service. And it's important for me that we all understand that in a mystical way that we're all at the table together, that we participate in Christ together. And so my hope is that these two episodes renew your experience of worship and even give a new sense of importance and meaning to whatever way you happen to be worshiping with us now. Okay, so let me just begin by saying that worship is something that we all do because worship, as I define it, is a posture of the heart, a posture of adoration and thanksgiving towards something or someone we believe gives meaning to our life. When I say that worship is something we all do, what I mean is that worship arises out of something significant about what it means to be human, which is our need to deal with the question of meaning. Worship and meaning cannot be separated. You see, human beings are unique amongst God's creatures in their quest for meaning. I mean, right, there is a question we all love to ask, why? It's a question we start asking when we are very young. Why do I have to go to bed early? Why can't I have some ice cream? But as we get older, the questions get a little bit more serious. Why did Pawpaw die? Do I have to die too? And if so, why? In other words, after we get to a certain age, life becomes more than a mere emotional reaction to being hungry or needing to get more sleep. We stop becoming a mere emotional reactor to our environment, and we start to think. And the first question we ask is why? And there is something wonderful about our why question, something beautiful. It's like we're born knowing that we have to search, that there is meaning to be found. I mean, it's really amazing if you think about it, but more often than not, the answers we come up with or the answers we're told do not satisfy our intellect or our heart. For example, why do I have to go to bed early? Because I said so doesn't do it for the average eight-year-old. Now, of course, eight-year-olds grow up. At some point, they get it. They come to understand that they need a certain amount of sleep, or at least they come to believe that their parents, the one barking the orders, genuinely care about them 
are not just trying to be mean. But by then, it is too late. The quest for meaning is off and running, and they have come up with a completely new set of questions. Why am I always picked last at recess? Why do I feel this way around this girl? Why is it so hard to talk to her? And we would be foolish, very foolish, to dismiss these questions as unimportant, as mere adolescent inquiry, because in every why question, you will find the kernel for what I like to call one of the ultimate questions. Why am I always picked last at recess? Well, that's really a question about suffering, isn't it? Why do I like this girl so much, and why doesn't she like me? That's really a question about our desire for intimacy, for communion, for love, and about the pain we feel that this desire never seems to be fully met. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we all embark on a quest for meaning, and let's be honest, for some, this quest ends tragically. Many end life with the words of Macbeth in their hearts, Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But for others, the quest for meaning ends beautifully, faithfully, and heroically. Consider the words of St. Paul in his letter to young Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, I think most people in our world tend to fall somewhere between Macbeth and St. Paul, but you and I do have some say, some agency with respect to where we fall on that spectrum. But again, at some point in our lives, the quest for meaning begins. Whether we are conscious of it or not, We all embark on a quest for meaning. So all that to say, Christian Eucharistic worship is deeply concerned, deeply concerned with this human quest for meaning. In worship, we are reminded what makes life meaningful, the ultimate good that gives value to our life, and we lift up our heart or we set our heart on pursuing that reality And of course, as Christians, we call that reality God, and by God we mean the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let's say I'm about to celebrate the Eucharist. I want you to go ahead and respond at home as you would if this were a Sunday worship service. The Lord be with you, and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We lift them up to the Lord. Do you see the assumption behind those words? The assumption is that it is entirely possible to lift up our hearts to something or to someone else other than the Lord. The Bible calls this idolatry. And the first thing I learned in ethics class when I went off to seminary is that all sin is idolatry. Behind every sin we commit, murder, adultery, greed, pride, You'll find something we have set our heart upon, something we've lifted up our hearts to, other than God, 
because we think it's going to rescue us or to make life meaningful. You see, one way or another, all sin is a violation of the second commandment, the commandment that says, you shall not make an idol for yourself. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, not to money or to social status or physical beauty, not to climbing the corporate ladder or to keeping my reputation in check, not to feeling good, or to any other idol we think will make our life meaningful. No, we lift our hearts to the Lord. In a very real sense, that is what Christian worship is all about, lifting our hearts first and foremost to the Lord. Christian worship is about finding meaning in God. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, you say, but what God are we talking about? Well, before we look at the particular God we worship, I want to suggest that there are three questions that all thinking humans, that all philosophies of life have to come to terms with. The first question is, who are we? The second, what is wrong? And the third, what is the solution? The question of God is bound up with these three questions. First, who are we? Are we fundamentally determined by our race, gender, or social class? Are we pawns in a determinist game? Are we God or a part of God? These are all common answers to the question, who are we? But the Christian answer is different. Second, what is wrong? Were we created evil? Or maybe humans are just ignorant and need to be corrected. Is capitalism the great problem, as Marx insisted? Or did Freud capture the fullness of the human predicament with his theory that we repress painful memories deep into our unconscious mind and then transfer those feelings onto others? Or does the answer to the question, what's wrong, go a lot deeper? Which is what Christians have traditionally suggested. And then finally, what is the solution? Well, that obviously depends on how we frame the problem, but either way, these are the three questions that all people have to come to terms with in their quest for meaning. Who are we? What is wrong? What is the solution? These are the questions we eventually run into if we take this quest for meaning seriously. And so it should come as little surprise that every time we worship, every time the Eucharistic meal is shared, we not only answer these questions, but in an odd way, in a sacramental way, we enter into these questions. But I'll say more about that in a bit. Okay, now I do know this is pretty heady stuff, but stay with me. You can do it. I believe in you. I've told you that we all search for meaning. I've told you we all search for meaning, and then I've given you three questions we all ask. Who are we? What is wrong? What is the solution? Now, how do we deal with these questions? The answer is that human beings deal with these questions by telling stories. Stories connect us to our history. Stories root our lives in the past. Stories may not answer our every question, but they do place our ultimate questions in a much larger context. And so I would say that Christian worship is in part about finding our life or finding meaning in the right story. The right story about who we are, 
the right story about what's wrong with our world, and the right story about how that problem will eventually be solved. And I know this probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, but the Christian story does not begin with Jesus or with Paul. Now, I do love Paul. I quote him all the time. And so if you think that Christianity is mainly about Paul, I have to take partial blame. But of course, the Christian story begins with Genesis chapter 1. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that we share about 60% of our story with the Jewish people, the story of creation, the story of the fall, and of course, the story of the people of Israel, creation, fall, Israel. This is a huge piece to our Christian story. And so it is crucial that we understand this because This is going to be the story that Jesus knew and lived, the story that Jesus was born into. Creation, fall, Israel, that is the story Jesus thought he was fulfilling through his death on the cross. And so our story, the Christian story, is rooted in a much older story, which is captured in what's commonly called the Old Testament. And so to begin talking about Christian Eucharistic worship, we have to revisit our Jewish roots. And so I want to tell you a story the Hebrew people would tell over and over and over again because this story in particular defined who they were as a people. And thus, this is a story that would have given Jesus's life a lot of its meaning. And of course, I'm talking about the story of the Exodus. The Exodus, you may recall, is about being set free from slavery. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, but then God parted the Red Sea, which made it possible for Israel to go to the promised land. And the feast that commemorates this great event in the Old Testament is called the Passover. And so I'm going to read you a portion of the book of Exodus that describes this great event. This reading is set in Egypt and takes place the night before the people of Israel are supposed to leave Egypt. A reading from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that they are to take a lamb for each family. The lamb shall be without blemish. They shall slaughter it, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the houses in which they eat. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout all generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Here ends the reading. Now, I just want to unpack this reading for us a little bit. First, God tells the people of Israel that this event, the Exodus, will mark the beginning of months. This event, God says, will change everything. It's going to mark their new year. 
Second, a lamb will be slaughtered. The blood of the lamb will be placed on the doorposts of their home, and somehow this blood will protect them and save them and mark them out as distinct. Finally, and I'll quote the Bible directly here, this day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout all generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. In other words, remember this event. Pay close attention to what's about to happen. Tell the story of your exodus over and over again to your children and to your children's children. Allow this story, this event, to define you as a people. And that is exactly what the people of Israel do. If you haven't read the Old Testament, 98% of it in one way or another is about the Exodus. It either looks forward to it or describes it or looks back on it. No matter what happens to the people of Israel, and a whole heck of a lot happens to them, they look back to the Exodus and they allow the Exodus to give meaning to their lives. Year after year, their chief act of worship, their primary festival of celebration is the Passover, a festival where they retell the story of how God acted in a mighty way to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Now, here is why it is so important for us to understand that the people of Israel, especially in Jesus' day, found the meaning of their lives in the story of the Exodus and in the festival of the Passover. Because they expected God to do it again. They were awaiting a second Exodus, a new Exodus, a final Exodus. You see, Jews in Jesus' day were a conquered people. It wasn't the Egyptians. They were out of power by the first century, but it was the Romans that now enslaved them. In other words, the promised land was not yet a reality. The people of Israel were not living freely in the land that flowed with milk and honey. Instead, they were under the oppression of a foreign army. And so every year, every year when it came time to celebrate the Passover and remember what God had done, the people of Israel were simultaneously looking forward to what they believed God would do, a second exodus, a new exodus, a final exodus, where Rome would be defeated and all of Israel's problems would be solved. Now this, unfortunately, is where we have to stop today. But it is so important that we understand this background because nothing we do as Christians on Sunday morning here at St. Michael's makes any sense apart from this history. As Stanley Hauerwas has said, the story we learn and become when we join a church is all about the God who raised Jesus from the dead having before raised Israel from Egypt. The God who raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. That before is so important, that God raised Jesus, having before raised Israel. 
Now, next week, we're going to explore what Jesus was doing the night before he died when he instituted the sacrament of Holy Communion. And in doing so, we will learn not just who Jesus was, but who we are as well.